0: welcome to the Home of Medicine podcast with me Dr Amy Burbridge. Today I am joined by
1: Hi Dr Ben Lovell calling, thank you for having me again.
0: Oh absolute pleasure. Now I think what everybody really wants to know Ben is how are the shelves getting on?
1: The shelves are in embryo form. I have just moved house a couple of months ago, so Mm. the shelves in the old house were left behind, shed like (gasps) an old skin, and I'm waiting for my (laughs) new shelves to be constructed. So I've been living two months, all of my books, all of my babies in cardboard boxes or coffins, as I call them, in a pile in the corner of the room. And my shelves are being built and painted and they will be up, I think, on the the. Uh, just after Easter weekend and then they will be in all their glory and then of course people will be able to to take appreciative pictures off on Twitter but I'm very excited.
0: Yeah your shelves are a thing of beauty.
1: I know I know and it it breaks my heart that I haven't had bookshelves for a while but they're coming people hang in there they're coming.
0: (laughs) So whilst we're waiting for the shelf pictures on Twitter um, everybody can have a listen to um, the podcast that we're about to do. Fab. Okay, so um, I think you've got a case for me, haven't you? I do, I do. Okay, are you ready? As ever.
1: So this is a case of a 24-year-old male who is a Polish gentleman with very minimal English. And he was referred very abruptly um, by the emergency medicine team to the medical take, saying that he's in resus and he has been fitting continuously now for 30 minutes and they've given two milligrams then two milligrams of IV lorazepam with no uh, effect at all. Anesthetics are on their way however the patient doesn't Um, seem to require an airway uh, adjunct at the moment and his vital signs is all his hemodynamic parameters are really okay apart from mild tachycardia but he hasn't stopped this fitting activity now for half an hour um, and they're asking for medical input and support Uh, and we are just round the corner in Estec so we we all trundle around as an excited team to resus uh, to meet this patient. Um, So any initial thoughts or or question marks that you wanted that what occurs to you really when you hear this story
0: okay I've got a 24 year old male in recess who's fitting for 30 minutes so is this seizure activity tonic-clonic seizure activity
1: exactly so they say it's a very dramatic tonic-clonic activity Mm -hmm. with um no awareness which has waxed and waned over the 30 minutes but Mm -hmm. not stopped uh, and he hasn't sort of woken up at all at any point
0: and he's had two milligrams, two milligrams, two milligrams of, what was it? Benzodiazepine, which one?
1: Loraz, IV loraz. He said two and two, so four total thus far. Four total, yeah, mm. okay.
0: So it's quite a lot of lorazepam on board, isn't it? And it hasn't had any effects at all on the seizure no. activity. Okay, but interestingly, his observations are normal, apart from yeah. a mild tachycardia.
1: Well, when we turned up there and we looked at the monitor and mm. uh, his heart rate was 109, sinus uh his blood pressure was 149 over 100 um respiratory rate was 26 and his sats were actually picking up a very normal trace at 99 percent peripherally without any um need for oxygen they tried putting oxygen on but the the mask kept slipping off so he left they left it off and his sats were actually maintained normally okay
0: so he wasn't trying to put i know it's just going to send a strange question but he wasn't trying to pull the mask off like in correct. like an agitation rather than a seizure, seizure activity
1: correct they weren't able to elicit any purposeful movements at all
0: okay so i guess as soon as i approach i'm going to go a to e on i'm going to do an airway breathing circulation disability and check everything else really i guess um blood glucose
1: blood glucose i have here and that was on the vbg that came out at 6.2
0: Okay. So I always think it's one of those things that often gets forgotten about is what's their blood glucose? Because sometimes that can be hypoglycemic that's actually causing the seizure activity. Um, okay. So that's fine. Do you remember um,
1: when you were taught in medical school, ABCDEFG, and they said it stood for airway, breathing, circulation, don't ever don't forget glucose? Don't ever forget glucose? glucose yeah. Yes. And, and I've just forgotten. You just remember
0: that I forgot. never
1: left. It's <laughs> funny because that came from a time when you didn't get the glucose handed to you, but you didn't get the fabulous Ooh. VBG with all the data on. You had to remember to do um a, yes. a CBG separately, separately to that. Whereas now someone hands with a VBG and I've got data yeah. coming out of my ears. I've got electrolytes, renal function, and all sorts, but you had to remember to do it. But yeah, yes. glucose is a great thing to always keep an eye on because it can yep. it can change on you.
0: And I also think that. Highlights how long ago we qualified, Ben. <laughs> oh, shush. I'm <laughs> we 29.
1: We've <laughs> yeah. got no proof of the
0: contrary. <laughs> okay, so actually, I want to know a little bit more about the gentleman. Does he have any ID on him? Does he have any medication on him? Does he have any bottles of alcohol? Mm. Do you know where he was found, who he was found by? Are the paramedics there? Any friends? Has he got a phone on him?
1: Yeah. So collateral so- history. It turned out he was found collapsed in the street and a concerned passerby called 999 and at that point there was no epileptiform movement he was just out and then after the ambulance arrived and they tried to sit him up and get him into the back of an ambulance for assessment is when the epileptiform movement started he does have a mobile phone on his person which is locked um, he does have a wallet with some small amounts of cash and a bank card in which has his name on and confirms his age as being 24 from his some ID, but um, no contact numbers for a next of kin or anything like that. No drugs or alcohol or any paraphernalia of that kind were found on him either.
0: Um, was he? Um, what was his temperature? Was he very? Did he have a high temp, low temp?
1: It was normal, 37.4. Mm. Sorry, 36.4.
0: Thirty-six point four. So we've done A to E then. We've 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 made sure that he's stable from that perspective. Hmm. Um obviously he's still fitting. So I'm now worried that he is still fitting. That obviously the longer somebody has seizure activity, the more likely you know that can actually have an effect on the brain. But is this a true is this a true seizure? What do you question? mean? What do you mean? So um Is this an epileptiform seizure that we are witnessing? Um, I'm a little bit stuck, to be honest. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So I'll give you some more data. Yeah. Um, We have all of his bloods come back and they're all completely normal. His lactate's normal for what it's worth. Um, And then the question is, is this status epilepticus which is obviously yeah. a, a, um, a horrendous a medical emergency mm-hmm. resulting in severe short-term and long-term morbidity and mortality and do we keep piling in the benzodiazepines or mm. do we start loading on an anti-epileptic medication yeah. and um, now, my gut is always, if someone has not responded to two doses of benzos, it's time to reach for the anti-epileptic drugs. Uh, yeah, okay. And I, I do know that people who just keep having benzos after benzos after benzos, eventually you will administer a, a sort of a staggered general anaesthetic. And these people will end up losing an airway and having to go to intensive care and possibly be intubated because they've had like... 12 milligrams of loraz or, or something or midazolam on board so I do like to give my personally I always give them um, the anti-epileptic medications and load them uh, after the second dose of benzos if that hasn't had an effect if I think someone's in status what's your what do you load how do you load uh, anti-epileptics are you still a phenytoin gal or have you switched on
0: mute Sorry, I'm on mute. Um, so I like to use okay. Um Why?
1: When did you switch and why?
0: When did I switch? I probably switched when I was a acute medical registrar, probably in the last couple of years. Um, and I'd spent some time in, in ITU, actually. I did ITU as part of my training. Um, and I found that we tended to use levetiracetam in ITU for seizure activity rather than phenytoin. Um, so it's more experiential use than any mm-hmm. evidence what about yourself
1: because it was fenny, wasn't it It was fenny to another way and a certain point point. and yeah. the reason I switched to well should I give you the honest answer why I switched, switched to lever trust the peer pressure because everybody else had and it was I was following the vogue and the fashion of the time and it was when I was a registrar as well and I was never quite clear why we changed whereas I think I have a clearer idea now about what the rationale was um, everyone says phenytoin is a dirty or drug and they're right. It interacts with the medications. It's got long term side effects. And I noticed what was the first thing that the neurologist did the next day when they came to review these patients who I'd managed to abort their status epilepticus by loading with phenytoin they cross-weaned them over to levotiracetam. Yes. And I thought, well, rather than have this cross-weaning period, might as well just get it right first and start them on the drug there and never going to what? But I never found, and I still have never found Keppra. I'm going to say Keppra if that's okay, because it yes. it's easy to pronounce I've never found Kepra on NICE or, or a guidance. It's, I don't think no. it's still first line, first status, but it's something we all do in practice
0: yeah. now
1: um, because I, I think we have compelling evidence um, that, that it's as good. The only oh. trial I know of was the Eclipse trial, and they showed that it, that Kepra was non-inferior to phenytoin. So I was like, okay, that's good enough for me. It's as good as phenytoin. So let's use it. I guess the only thing going against uh, Kepro is that it's, it costs a fortune. If you ever look up the prices. Oh, the I know. phenytoin versus Kepro. Yeah. yeah. But, but I have yeah.
0: found, sorry, Ben, um, you were going
1: to say. I that i just found, I found it, it, it. It's sort of more culturally used and it's culturally very acceptable yeah. um and people tell me that it's better for patients so yes yeah, so i i do reach for that now
0: yeah and i think when i when i'm in resource now it seems that lever trust time is more readily available as well mm. so if i prescribe phenytoin i can't get it anyway you know it's one of those that's drugs that sort of come out of favor so yeah. it's a good point actually it's like and phenytoin. i feel
1: like would need to cardiac monitor as well i'm not yeah. sure um but yeah and you have to, to do levels yeah. You've got to do levels and then no one ever, no one ever keeps it long-term. So, you know, um, have you ever seen anyone load with valproate before? I haven't personally.
0: Oh, no.
1: No, neither have I, but apparently you can load with valproate. I intravenous sodium valproate. What dose of Keppra do you use?
0: I can't remember, Ben.
1: I always had 1.5 grams stuck in my head. I
0: was just about to say (laughs) 1.6 grams. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, But, I'm, but I mean, I'm, I'm on maternity leave at the moment. So my brain is um, fried. So um, and I think whenever we are prescribing drugs in that sort of situation, I will always double check the dose, triple check it, quadruple yeah. check it, get one of the doctors I'm working with to check it as well, just to make sure I'm given exactly the, the right dose. Well, I
1: looked it up for this podcast and actually yes. it's 60 milligrams per kilogram. I think I've been underdosing them for ages because it Did comes it? out yeah. that comes out of like four grams for, for, for yeah. a healthily built adult. The max dose you give is 4.5. But um, yeah, I don't know where I got 1.5 from. I, I, I feel like maybe one patient was a 1.5 dose and that stuck in my head, mm. which uh, I guess is a little cognitive um, glitch. That, uh, that I've had, I, I don't think anyone's come to harm, but it's funny how things stick in your mind.
0: It's you know, the same with them. Um, yeah, it's like magnesium sulfate, isn't it? Two, uh, two exactly. Two it's grams, two. Yeah. <laughs> but for some reason, I always think two point four. But I am like, where's the where's the point four come from? Again, it's one of those cognitive glitches, isn't it? That yeah. you are like, I've clearly heard it somewhere. Um, I obviously don't just prescribe random doses. I will always double check yeah. to make sure I am not. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so we've got this twenty-four year old man. We're thinking of loading him with yeah. um, Kepra or yeah. um because he's still fitting. Yeah, um, Has he um, lost control of his bowels or bladder?
1: Mm-mm, there's been no incontinence. Uh, and, you know, we've looked around. We can't see any tongue biting okay. uh, or, or sort of cheek biting. But no, there was no bladder or bowel c- uh, loss of control.
0: OK, so is examination possible of him so can you actually like can you listen to his chest his heart is it possible at all
1: yeah I, I mean his chest sounds clear his mm-hmm. heart sound normal heart sounds there's no sort of peripheral edema there is no stonking dbt his abdomen is non-tender there's no organomegaly we could appreciate um there was no rashes there okay. was no uh, sort of infective or vasculitic phenomena um there was no needle injection sites um no clubbing of the nails so really nothing that, that jumped out
0: hmm. so the first thing in this situation is to stabilize the patient isn't it and that's what we that's what you've been talking about is to trying to stop this seizure activity if it is seizure activity hmm. um and loading with something like levetiracetam would seem appropriate hmm. i would also at this point, want to be getting advice, either like you said, from the intensive care doctors or neurologists.
1: Mm. Um, Yeah, you're right. Stabilisation is paramount. I guess if we were going to be picky, he's kind of stable. He's just very, (laughs) very active. Uh, But when we say stable, I guess, what do we we mean? Do we mean tranquil or do we mean normal hemodynamic parameters?
0: So we use that word a lot, don't we? Stable. But mm-hmm. actually, what does it mean? So he's hemodynamically stable, isn't he? Because his mm-hmm. blood pressure, it's all normal. But it's this seizure, this fitting that I don't like. And I'd be very concerned. I would say he's not stable if he's still having this mm. fitting activity. Mm-hmm. And I'd want to try and eliminate that seizure activity um, if I could um, by trying um Kepra and getting some advice from the neurologists if needed. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I need to start thinking about what's the cause of this?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um so i need to be going through my head you know what is going on you said these bloods were normal full blood count was okay
1: uh his bloods were all normal including crp and uh, white cell counts electrolytes were fine as well
0: so normally if somebody has prolonged seizure activity they do tend to have a white cell response so their neutrophils go up um they sometimes get a lymphocyte count elevation Lactate again debatable whether you should use it for um identifying if somebody's having a seizure um but if everything's normal it's sort of think okay this isn't infective um his kidneys are okay his urea is okay so he hasn't got sort of like encephalopathy from high urea levels um has he had any trauma he was found in the street Mm. So, no
1: evidence of head trauma on examination a CT head was requested that had okay. not happened yet because we couldn't no. it wasn't safe to transfer yeah. to the to the scanner
0: okay so trauma is definitely something I'd want to be looking at um and we've we I mean we can't we don't know about his medication we could try and contact his GP if we know his name mm-hmm. speak to his local GP practice and find out is he on any regular medication does he have any past medical history of note? potentially that could be, maybe.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, I'll tell you what happened next. We did, we drew up the Kepra to give to load him with Kepra okay. and he actually stopped fitting um, uh, and sort of came around and was able to talk in Polish. And we had a Polish nurse who was able to translate and uh, he said, yeah, he he's a very vague historian who said, yeah, he sometimes has um, seizures and no, he doesn't know why and he's never seen a specialist before and they come and go. Um, and it sort of came out that he has been to a few different A and E departments with seizure attacks, and um, was eventually discharged. And we got the sense that maybe he did not attend follow up appointments with a neurologist. Um, um, hmm. And then he then um, he he was admitted for observation. Um, and every time we sort of came to the point where um, we said you've been fit free for a while he would have another seizure um and they were very similar these very um violent thrashing movements with no real derangement of his um hemodynamic parameters um and they seemed to be related to his levels of emotional distress um and a few more observations came out i have to say whenever this is just me and uh, I'm not going on evidence here for just talking about my own experience. When I do see someone who has very violent seizures without any derangement in either their biochemistry or in their, they haven't lost an airway or become hypoxic or or done anything weird to their hemodynamics. And they're quite resistant to to benzos. I do start asking the questions about whether this is an epileptic seizure or not. Um, And if it's not an epileptic seizure, what I'm asking is, is this what we now call non-epileptic attacks? which has had lots of different names over the years. Um, they were called pseudo seizures when I was at medical school, mm. I think when I, was, when I just graduated. And then before that, they were probably called something like dissociative seizures. And then at the turn of the century, they were called hysterical seizures. Uh, and now I think we prefer non-epileptic attacks um and I I do just I start wondering and that's when I sort of come up close to the patient and try to see there's any sort of semiology any signs I can pick up as to whether I think this is epileptic or non-epileptic do you you have any sort of things that you look at or or do you think that not not truly diagnosed is definitely one or the other but makes you favor perhaps one or the other
0: so I've tend to find um with the non-epileptic attack attacks which um, I did work in one particular area of the UK where we used to see a huge number of these, and I do wonder whether it—it it was just one of those things. And it's the movements that I tend to find um, a lot of thrusting, um, sort of in the pelvic region, actually, sort mm. of like jumping off the bed. Um, a lot more movement in the non-epileptic attacks rather than the epileptic attacks, um, often. You could say their name and they would stop, Mm. I found. Um, And I found that quite helpful. Um, There wasn't any um, incontinence, no tongue biting. And if there was tongue biting, Mm. it wasn't that typical at the side of the tongue where you tend to expect um, with epileptic seizures. It was at the front um, of the tongue. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes as well, when they opened their eyes, they didn't have the eyes rolling back in the head. It was more of a focused eye movement. Um, but again, everybody's very different. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think it's the gut instinct that tells you whether it's seizure yeah. or non seizure. And we also used to use mobile EEGs as well.
1: Yes. So uh, the gold standard is to get an EEG whilst there. Whilst they're actually in an interictal sort of episode, and that's the only way you'll know. Video EEG with, with telemetry, but so I think in acute medicine we have to use other clues, as you say, and it comes from gut. And I wonder what is the gut? What is that? And I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I've got certain things which are, are never completely diagnostic for one or the other. I'm never going to say, "Aha, you see this? This means it cannot be a seizure," because anything is possible. But I do collect clues and sort of okay. signs. That's I sort of run through my gut and then say I think this we're going to find this is going to be non-epileptic in origin, and the same as you if I can in, if I can change the intensity or the activity of the seizure by interacting with the patient, mm. that that's a big one that you know you, you you're you're not conscious if you're having two generalized tonic chronic seizures. So I always advise people I come down, I go to the patient I come down and sort of hold their hand and say into their ear. My name's Ben. I'm the doctor looking after you. Everything's going to be OK. Could you just give my hand a little squeeze just so I know that you can hear me and that you're in there? And they don't usually squeeze the hand. But if that interaction either dramatically decreases or increases the intensity of the, the activity, that is a strong clue for me that it is non-epileptic in origin. So if they suddenly ramp up or they suddenly calm down, I find that quite telling. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is, do they have their eyes screwed up really tight and they won't let you open their eyes? To Mm -hmm. me, that that implies a little bit of volitional eye screwing. And I Mm -hmm. think that people having true epileptic seizures tend to sort of have eyes sort of gently closed or half closed. They're glazed over, not seeing really Mm that screwed up and the thrashing of the head from side to side. I'm on a podcast, people can't see me. I'm dramatically thrashing my head from side to side. Um, You know, that doesn't quite make sense because why would the electrical activity be going from left, right, left, right hemisphere, you know, activating a neck muscle on either side. Mm. So these are sort of things, and the same with the legs. If they're sort of alternately bicycling their legs, Mm. that's just, that doesn't quite make neurological sense to me. Mm -hmm. So they're the things I sort of look for when I'm interacting with the patient just to see if Mm -hmm. I can... If I can, and obviously, and if they cry out, if they start mm. crying or shouting or screaming, mm-hmm. you don't really get that with ton, generalized tonic-clonic mm-hmm. epilepsy. You can get these bizarre elastic seizures where they start laughing or crying, but I, mm-hmm. I, usually you, they they don't vocalize at all. So I sort of go around collecting clues, Miss Marple, like, and then that helps me sort of decide what I think I'm going to do next. Because what I okay. don't want to do is to give someone who's having non-epileptic seizures too many drugs mm. because I'm going to harm them. I'm going to actually lead to them being over sedated and requiring airway adjuncts and maybe admitted to ITU. But it's so hard to tell in the moment
0: mm-hmm. and
1: junior doctors, they say, if I don't know, and it's the middle of night, this is a seizure, uh, an epileptic or non-epileptic attack. What should I do? Then the safest thing often to do is to treat it, keep them f- fit free as best you can
0: absolutely, uh,
1: until we can get the EEG in the morning. Rather than making a rather brave assumption that this is probably going to be a non-epileptic attack, let's just leave them to calm down for a while and and see what happens. I I know experienced physicians will do that, but I appreciate that's quite a brave decision to make, Mm. especially out of hours.
0: I've had um, when I've been in had conversations with neurologists about this as well, um, who obviously are used to you know see this a lot more than I do. They often say that somebody who has non-epileptic attacks also has epileptic attacks
1: oh absolutely yeah
0: so they often have a primary epileptiform disorder and on top of that so when you have that it's like to make that decision that which type of seizure is this is it a non-epileptic attack Is at or is it an epileptic attack that is for me extremely specialist and unless I know the patient really well Mm. I'd struggle to make that decision, I think, in the heat of the moment. And I agree with you. You know, I would always treat as a seizure activity until proven otherwise, for yeah. the safety of the patient. Conscious of that, I don't want to oversedate and keep giving benzodiazepines time and time and time again.
1: Yeah, apparently 30 to 40% of patients with epilepsy also mm. have non epileptic yeah. attacks. And they could be exactly phenotypically identical. I mean, you cannot no. know which type they're having right now in front of you.
0: Yeah, and that's absolutely. really hard. Yeah.
1: I have had some patients who have had an attack and they've come around and they've sort of said, no, that wasn't an epileptic one. I, I have no. I have pseudo seizures, you know, that in their words, that wasn't. You know, but it's very rare that a patient will mm. have insight into which type of seizure they're going to have as well. Mm. Um, when I you had make, a- go ahead.
0: I remember a patient I saw a few years ago. Um, she was in her early 20s at university, and her mum and dad had brought her in, who was having seizure activity. And um, she'd been in a couple of times, and she was away at university and had been going to AE departments with a seizure activity. And long conversation with the mum and dad and the patients, numerous investigations. It turned out that actually this was probably more than likely non-epileptic attacks and what was really interesting in this situation was trying not to over medicalize Mm. the the seizure activity and it's that fine line of how as physicians do we have the confidence to say, actually, I don't think we need to investigate this or manage this further? Because sometimes you find you'll see patients who are in this spiral who actually don't have the seizure activity, they don't have a primary epilepsy disorder or secondary epilepsy seizures, but they start a medication, they become medicalized, and then they then feel like they have epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And, and it's
1: hard to undo isn't really it
0: really challenging i actually yeah. have the
1: de- there's some numbers here the average time from your first non-epileptic attack until you get the diagnosis of non-epileptic attack disorder is 6.2 years and in those 6.2 years patients often have multiple hospital admissions um, they have endless cycles of different anti-epileptic medications with mm. different side effects including fertility issues for younger people um, And whilst it's really important to make the diagnosis because you need to know what you're treating to avoid harm, in fact, it's a therapeutic diagnosis. And about 80% of Mm. patients who do have non-epileptic attack disorders have a reduction in their number of uh, attacks and their hospital admission frequency once they are explained the diagnosis and the people around them understand it. So getting the diagnosis is really important to avoid harm, iatrogenic harm, but also in order to give them some kind of um, understanding and therefore to improve the nature of the actual illness itself. And um, mm. I, I always historically, when I was trying to explain it to patients, I always said there are two types of seizures, epileptic and non-epileptic seizures. And in your case, we think they're non-epileptic. And I was actually taught recently that's maybe not the right way to go because that actually blurs the line a little mm. bit too much. And a specialist neurologist who's interested in functional disease says, if you look up the word seizure by any definition, the definition of seizure is abnormal brain activity. And these people don't have that. So he said we shouldn't actually use the word seizure we should use attacks, um, ah. and it's, it's just, it's more medically accurate. And also it just helps disentangle a little bit um, it, for everyone's understanding what's actually going on. Um, and seizure and using the word seizure, it's such a medical term mm. that actually it can over-medicalize the issue. What do you think?
0: I completely agree. I think as an acute physician like yourself, Ben, we see as huge amounts of, I don't really like the term functional disorders mm. um, and I do think we over um a, a lot of, of people actually and um, one thing I really find challenging is um, when you have an individual who's having a non-epileptic seizure um, attack or, or and they get again it's that it's another bias it's a visceral bias in that you find that some healthcare staff automatically shun them Mm -hmm. and say, oh, they're just putting it on, it's fake. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I'll just just leave them to it. Um, And it, you know, that is something else that I also find challenging because um, they're not faking it, actually. It is a true condition that they are experiencing. Um, And I do think we need to, I think we over-investigate and I think we over-treat and I think it's about managing that, lo- that line really.
1: You're, yeah. you're right, the worst thing you can do for someone who's having a non epileptic attack is to surround them by people who are eye-rolling, tutting, oh, saying oh infectious. don't worry, they'll tie themselves out eventually, oh, oh, Yeah, oh, absolutely. It, that actually will intensify the attack and it causes more more distress and you're right in what you say and that a non epileptic mm. attack is completely outside the patient's sphere of control and it causes them Inconvenience, you know, distress—they don't like to be having them. They don't want to have them. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I think probably there is a third. T- I think there probably is such a thing as a fake, as a factitious seizure, a literally fake yes. one, yeah, for patients who are trying to get something to happen. You know, where they sort of peek at you in the corner of their eye. But I think they're quite <laughs> rare. I think you know most of them of what we see that aren't epileptic are what you know um, non-epileptic attacks, and therefore outside the patient's control. And we have to just be so careful what's said at the bedside. We, we assume mm-hmm. they can't hear us or they're not registering, or we think that we can shame them out of it, saying, come on, all this bloody fuss, come on, enough of this. That, that has never worked in the history of time. Um, if you're gonna have conversations, best have them away from the bed space, the bed space because they can still hear you. Mm-hmm. And anything around the bed space should be supportive and trying to get them to resolve whatever. And I don't understand what the psychological you know, triggers are for this. It, I find it fascinating, but it's outside my understanding. But I do know that it's related to emotional distress. Um, so we shouldn't be adding to that because we're going to be adding to the scenes, well. What are we going to call it? The attacks. We're mm. going to be making them worse.
0: Mm. And I think you've highlighted um, an interesting point there when you say, actually, you know, we shouldn't be standing by the the patient's bed and, and talking about them. Mm. Um, and I see this happening all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you, in, in, you know, it could be any condition. You know, any patient that's presenting into the department, and you know, you see a ward round. Um, And one thing that really annoys me is talking about the patient with the patient there, but not to the patient. Mm -hmm. So you're talking over the bed about the patient itself and the patient's just sitting in the middle going. Yeah. Again, nobody can see what I'm doing, but I'm moving my head from (laughs) side to side Um, because actually I think that's quite disrespectful to the patient and we really need to engage them in this Mm -hmm. conversation. Um, But yeah, try and be careful of actually what we do say in front of patients. I think okay. that
1: usually when we're uh, at the patient's bedside, we do have to make a little flip between talking to patient and let's make a medical plan, which the patient obviously yeah. must be involved with. So I normally preface it by, okay, we've made a plan, um, and then I'll, I'm just going to go through it with my team now, and then I'll talk, and then I'll yes. talk in jargonese very quickly, and just say that was just me summarising so we know what we're doing, or sorry, we're just going to talk about you for one second, but when, then I'll come back to you, and then I'll turn to the team yeah. and say lots of. Very, very clever medical terms. And then I'll come back to the page and say, right, what did I mean then? What I meant was, and I try and use that to involve them in. And they are, therefore, I'm not trying to simultaneously speak two languages to two people and code switch That's between good. the two. That's good. I like
0: that. Yeah, I'm going to, I really like that signposting, actually. Um, I'm going to steal that because I do, strug- I'm gonna st- I do struggle sometimes with, the, like you say, is mm-hmm. how do I switch between the two? But actually... Signposting to the patient and to whoever's on your wardrobe that day, what you're going to do is a really good point, actually. Really yeah. good. I'm going to steal that, Ben. Thank you very much. Oh, have it. Have it. <laughs> so if we if you do have somebody who is having a non-epileptic attack, like this gentleman, what did you do? So how um, did you manage him?
1: So we, we managed it by getting the EEG, proving to the patient, showing them that there's no abnormal activity whilst you're having this attack. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he self-discharge, which seems mm-hmm. to be what's been happening around other hospitals. Um, it's very difficult when there's a, you know, when you're a, a non-English speaking patient and people are trying to talk to you via, you know, you, you have to wait for the interpreter and mm-hmm. it doesn't always come through. It's a very isolating experience. but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We, it, once we eliminated epilepsy as a, as a cause for his attacks, we then knew how to manage them. And there's only one treatment for um, how shall I phrase it non-epileptic status, and that mm. is just patience, um, patience, mm. and, and empathy, and, and just talking to the patient and mm. explaining what's happened to them, and uh, and letting it go. Uh, letting it end on its own. There's nothing you can really do to to stop someone having a non-ethic attack except show them the kindness and make sure they know they're safe and letting them come out of it. You mm. know, because there's no drug we can reach for. There's nothing, that we, no therapeutic intervention apart from that very basic stuff.
0: Mm. And I think, you know, that's what we need to do more of is actually kindness and empathy um, with our patients. Because sometimes people just, you know, want a good want to chat, you Mm -hmm. know, and feel like they're being listened to. Um, There's obviously something else going on in this gentleman's life and background that is triggering these off. But if they're self-discharge, it's often very hard to really get to the bottom of what's truly leading to this, isn't it? If you haven't got the time with them.
1: Yeah. And and if they're moving from institution to institution, Mm. sometimes it's just impossible to join the dots, Mm. work out what's been done.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Would you make a referral for this patient to anybody if he had stayed in?
1: Absolutely, yes. Mm. And where I work, we have an amazing uh, nationally renowned neurology hospital uh, in, in our trust. And there is a huge mm. specialist, um, specialist uh, in functional disor- disorders who see right. these patients. So we, we're very fortunate we can make a referral to the functional uh, neurological disorders mm. unit. Um, and they have a very multidisciplinary multimodal approach to these patients and the patient education and all that sort of thing
0: mm-hmm. so
1: yeah that's something that we would definitely do
0: that's fantastic that you've got that sort of provision there um I mean in in the absence of that type of service I guess referral to neurology would be an appropriate way to mm, go
1: I think so and I think neurology but I think this also has to be some kind of psychological psychotherapeutic input as well. Absolutely. I I don't know how what the best um, intervention psychological intervention would be for for this cohort of patients I don't know there's evidence for CBT for example talking therapies Mm. in this but I've got Mm. a feeling that that has to be a very broad part of the approach to managing these patients long term.
0: Yeah absolutely and I guess it's about giving the the patient coping strategies as well and how to recognize maybe is there warning signs for when an an attack's going to start and how they can ground themselves and stop it from escalating potentially Mm -hmm. Um, really interesting it's definitely highlighted some points that I wasn't aware of actually Um, yeah what are your three key learning points that you want us to take away from this case
1: Okay, I guess number one would be when someone is having a seizure, it's worth coming up to the patient and just looking and interacting just to absolutely make sure or or to at least gather evidence that you can then present to to your own sort of gut feeling mechanism about whether or not this is epileptic or non-epileptic in origin. Thinking about... the loading of an antiepileptic medication, which one, when would you use it and what dose would you use? I think it's important. I think just keep giving recurrent doses of benzos back to back is eventually going to lead to patient harm and something that could be could be avoided. And I guess finally it's about if you do have someone who has non-epileptic attack disorders it's about recognizing that for you as a clinician it is frustrating it's frustrating when they are taking up your time when you cannot discharge mm-hmm. them because every time you do they have to, they're taking up a lot of resource but understanding that it as frustrating is for you it is for the patient they have no control over what's going on either and what they're looking for in you is someone to be empathetic rather than someone to say now come on stop your nonsense. And I have seen both approaches before for in my in my time and I know which one works and which one doesn't
0: Mm. there's also a a question about driving Mm. so um, in the UK if you have seizure activity Mm. then um, you have to inform the drive the DVLA which is the uh, driver vehicle licensing agency because you've had a seizure and obviously the risk of having a seizure activity when you're driving can obviously cause harm to yourself and others I actually don't know what the situation is with non-epileptic attacks and driving
1: I think you have to be absolutely certain there is no you have to first of all be able to clinch the diagnosis with with telemetry EEG first of all and then after that I think it needs to be a very a a completely specialist decision about is this patient likely to have attacks whilst driving or not and whether or not they use the same metric which is are they fit uh, free for a period of time before they can drive again I don't know um, so I don't know the, how they how they come to make the decision. But I think if they if there's any even suggestion, it could they could still be true epilepsy here. They would take it um, yeah. as an epileptic patient.
0: Absolutely. And it would then you'd have to give the patient the information about informing DVLA. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, that's again is another minefield, isn't it? Um, mm. And that's always a, a reminder that I have to tell myself is when I have saw a patient who's had a blackout or a seizure to tell them um you can't drive and I often print the information off the DVLA website as well to remind myself and also them um, yeah because it's don't drive
1: don't lock doors I usually say someone's had a first fit Mm. when you're at home don't lock doors you know if you go to the loo yeah just say I'm in the loo and shout it out but uh yeah don't be behind a locked door just just or or take a bath you know Mm. be be a shower person and at least who gets the first fit clinic and we we know the direction of travel thereafter but just don't put yourself at a risk of having a fit and we can't get in to help you
0: yeah that's a really really good point fantastic thank you so much for that ben thank um, you
1: very much for having me
0: no it's been really really interesting and i've learned a lot um definitely and thank you also for the uh, signposting i'm going to use that more when i'm taking histories from my patients you're very um,
1: welcome
0: yep yeah, thank you very much so thank you to everybody for listening to um this episode of the home of medicine podcast Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to the Home of Medicine podcast, a podcast brought to you by the EFIM Academy in association with the European Federation of Internal Medicine, a leading organization in internal medicine. Thanks for listening.